Morning, church. Uh, let's pray. Let's start uh, asking for God's help. Lord, in all things, we are absolutely dependent on you. We can, uh, we can do nothing without you. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot produce fruit. We cannot be glorious to you. And we need you. And as we, uh, as we listen to your word, as we sing, we need our eyes opened and our ears to hear. And as I speak, I need your spirit to speak through me. And in all this, we ask that you may be glorified as you do it and praised. And uh, yeah, may you, in the end, may we see more clearly our responsibility, our calling that you have called us to. We ask this in your name. Amen. In the world, and unfortunately, I, I, I would assume, maybe I shouldn't assume, but very, very likely, there are two types of people. Two types of people that God is only concerned about. You're either one, an unbeliever, which the Bible describes as being dead. You're described as being an enemy of God, a child of wrath, and separate from him. And the reason being is not by what you would assume. A lot of times we assume that the reason that unbelievers are enemies of God is because of what they do. That's not the issue. The issue is who they are. You see, all of us have been born into sin. It's our nature. It's who we are. It's a disease that enslaves us. We are born slaves to it, and we will do the symptoms of the disease, which is sin. As an unbeliever, there is no way you can have victory over it. There's no hope that you can do on your own. And as Romans 2 will say, you are storing up wrath for the day of judgment. But the gospel, the good news is that there is a redeemer, someone who has come and who has taken the debt that is owed towards that sin and the judgment that is deserved towards us, your nature, and he has killed the sin. This is Jesus, the Son of God, the Christ, who has come, and on the cross, every bit of wrath that was deserved towards sinful people was poured out on Jesus. And then he was buried. He was crucified, buried, and he rose. And when he rose from the grave, he defeated death. He defeated sin. And because of this glorious, glorious, wonderful work, 
he has then been about producing the second type of people. And these people have found victory from the life enslaved from sin because of their faith and their trust in Jesus only. The Bible calls these people Christians. They are believers. They are the redeemed, the purchased from God, the elect, the beloved of God, the children of God. They are alive. These people have had sin and that nature destroyed, killed, murdered in their life. They are free from its bondage and they no longer have the guilt of its workings on them. And they have been given one of the greatest gifts you could ever know, and that is the Spirit of the living God in them. The Spirit of God who produces inexplainable joy. He produces this peace that is overwhelming, this strength that can conquer anything. He produces the fruit in their lives. And probably one of the greatest benefits is he teaches us glorious truths on who God is. It's a privilege today if that's who you are. It's a grand, grand privilege. But it is vitally important that we examine ourselves to see which one we are. The Bible calls us over and over again to take this book and to use it as a mirror to test ourselves to see if we are a believer or an unbeliever. And the reason this is absolutely so important because one of the most frightening truths all through Scripture is that there are those who think, who believe that they are a believer who on their deathbed believe that they are going to enter eternal life. And the scriptures say that many will come to Jesus on that day and say, didn't we do all this in your name? And Jesus will say one of the most scariest things you could ever hear. I never knew you. These people said, Lord, Lord. And Jesus said, no, I never knew you. Depart from me. It's important that we test ourselves. And that's, that's what 1 John is an aid for. I mean, 1 John is helping us do this. It's one of the reasons why he wrote it. We, we talk about this all the time, 1 John 5, 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. The scriptures, God wants you to have assurance, but he also warns us against false assurance. There's a beautiful verse in Romans 8, 16 that says that the Spirit of God that lives inside of Christians bears witness to the spirit of a Christian that they are a child of God. And I trust that as we're going through 1 John and you're testing yourselves, you will sit there and you will find the Spirit of God assuring you, yes, you belong, and that is the sweetest thing you could ever, ever have. And so today, I preach to believers. It's very important that we distinguish this. 
Because number one, I think it's very proper that believers ask the question, now that they are assured, what do I do? It's dangerous when a believer looks and says, okay, I'm good. But now says, okay, God, you've done this great work, what do I do? And all throughout the Bible, you will see calls on what believers are supposed to do. We will spend our lifetime studying and talking about that. But there's one particular duty that the Bible calls us to, that God calls us to, that there is a fierceness, a, a tone of intensity and seriousness like no other. And that is the duty to kill sin. Now it's very important before we get going to know this. That the reason it's important that you test yourselves and know whether or not you're a believer or not because this message and this call to kill sin for the unbeliever cannot be done. As an unbeliever, you are enslaved to it. You will need a different sermon. And that is the grand sermon of the gospel. But today, for believers, it can be done. We're called to do it. And we're going to talk about it. So let me show you a few things. Number one, there is, whenever the Bible speaks of the salvation of a believer, there's always this common pattern. You'll see this common pattern of the salvation of a believer. It starts like this. Number one, Christ was killed for your sin. First thing to realize, this is the pattern. Christ was killed for your sin. Number two, you, believer, were killed in him and died to sin. And then number three, therefore, kill every quivering of the corpse of sin in yourself, lest you find that it's not a corpse, but rather a captor, and you're really dead. That's the pattern. That Christ was killed, you were killed in him and died to sin, be killing sin. Take a look at a few verses. And this is always the language that the Bible uses. It's, it's this serious tone. 1 Peter 2.24 Who himself, talking about Jesus, bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Romans 6.6 6, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. These are strong words. And those, 524, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and, desire, and desires. Colossians 3.3, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Romans 7.4, therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit. That's the language. Kill, kill, kill. Slaughter. And this is absolutely important that we get this picture that the Bible's trying to paint for us. 
Because this picture is what really helps us understand our calling as a Christian. So let's look through these observations. As these verses in your mind, think through these observations. Number one, Jesus bore our sin. He bore our sin. Christ, God, perfect. The only way for sin to be destroyed was if on the cross, Jesus would be crucified. He took our sins, it was placed on him, and God treated him as though he lived our life. And this was the only way for him to set us free from our captor. It's the only way that would work. If there was some easier way, some lighter way, I would assume that our language would be a lot lighter. But it was the crucifixion of God that it was. It's ugly. Next, we were crucified with Christ. See, there's this picture, and you'll see it in this next verse, this picture that when Christians are converted, it's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they are literally taken from the world and its, its powers, and they are placed in Christ. And Christ, then, they are pictured to actually die with Christ and rise with Christ. Look at this verse in Romans 6, 1 through 7. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized in his death? So here's the picture. We have been placed in Christ and our sinful nature as he dies is crushed. The enemy, sin, is crushed as Christ is crushed. It says, therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness and life. And so as Christ has died, he kills our enemy. He kills the man that enslaves us. And then we die with him, we are buried, and then we rise with him in a newness of life. A new being. It's why Paul says, you are a new creature. That old enslaved self no longer exists. He's dead. He goes on and says, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also should be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing that our old man, which is our old self, our sinful self, was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Christ died, we died in him, and we have, and he has killed our captor. That's an awesome message, church. Awesome message. Our captor, sin, is nothing more than a corpse. But here's the reality, and here's the truth that we must be aware of. That old dead man that was crucified will be always calling you back to make your abode with him. He can no longer grab you and force you to do things of his will, but he will always be pleading with you to come back. Consistently, 24-7. Romans 7, 21. This is Paul and his regenerate self. This is him as a Christian. I find then a law that evil is present with me. 
the one who wills to do good. Galatians 5.17, for the flesh lusts against the spirit. There's the spirit who lives inside a believer, and the flesh is always fighting against that spirit. And the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Yes, he's dead. Sin no longer is a captor, but he is always acting. He is always seducing. He's always tempting. And and we are still able to choose to go back and find our captor and wrap our arms around him. This reality must be in our minds daily. And if left undealt with, there will be great dangers lurking. What are those dangers? Number one, if sin, the indwelling sin who's dead in a believer is left undealt with, it will bring forth great, cursed, scandalous, soul-destroying sins. Galatians 5, 19, Now the works of the flesh are evident. This is what happens when we go back to our old man. Which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in the time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. The reality is, sin always desires the utmost it can have. It desires above all to participate at the highest extent of itself that it can be. And if left unchecked, and might it have its own course, it would go as deep and as dark as it could. Meaning that every unclean thought or glance, if sin had its way, would be adultery, would be rape. If it could. Every bitterness or anger would be murder. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism if it could grow to its end. So, Christian, do not be unaware of the extent or the depth of sin that you could fall if you don't deal with your old man. If left undealt with sin, left undealt sin can reach extremely high levels. Number two, if left undealt, it will break the bones of the soul, leaving you with loss of joy, peace, and strength. Psalms 31.10, for my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Psalms 38, there is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin, for my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. Consequences of undealt sin can affect both physically and emotionally, and it can be tormenting. 
lack of joy, lack of peace, lack of hope, if not dealt with. Next, it can lead to God's correction on your life. Proverbs talks about this, and it it talks about how we are to despise the correction of God. Yeah, that's when it comes. Because it is a loving act when God corrects us, when he disciplines us. But it is not something we should desire. Look at how he describes what he would do to those who don't obey him, who don't deal with their sin. It can be harsh. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquities with stripes. The idea of stripes is something that lasts forever. Something that a, a discipline can stay with you for a very long time. And it can hurt for a very long time. But nevertheless, and I love this part, my loving kindness I will not utterly take away from him. Nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break. Nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. God may go to harsh and extreme levels to reveal the sin that you have not dealt with. And the lasting effects of that can be, can be hard and are not desirable unless you're in it and you need that for the freedom of it. Next, it can grieve the Holy Spirit, obviously Ephesians 4.30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You know, this verse, I fear, doesn't provide as much motivation as I think it should. I think a lot of it has to do with the reality that we just are unaware of all the benefits that the Spirit provides for us. I mean, to grieve Him would mean to miss out of those benefits. And one of those, one of the scariest things that could happen is is, is the reality that we don't see our sin, that we aren't convicted of our sin. That's one of the benefits that we get from the Spirit of God is He points out when we are failing. And to grieve him in such a way would be to rob us from experiencing that benefit. These are dangerous, dangerous effects of undealt with sin. And last, if undealt with, there is a danger of eternal destruction. Romans 8, 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Now this is talking to believers because right after this verse he says, and you who have not been given the spirit of fear but have been given the spirit of children of God to be able to call God Abba Father, talking to Christians, he says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Jesus says it another way, and this is the verse we were talking about, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven Many will say to me in the day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You practice lawlessness. There is this connection with indwelling sin that isn't dealt with and eternal punishment throughout Scripture over and over again, as it is with good works and eternal life. So, What is this preaching? What is Jesus, what is Paul saying? Is Paul and Jesus saying that, okay, for you to not have hell, you must live a certain way. Or for you to be a Christian, probably better asked, you've got to do these things. 
that it would be works, right? Is that what I'm saying? No, because the reality is that both Jesus and New Testament writers understood this so deeply that the same grace that justifies you, that you receive by sovereign grace through faith alone, that same grace that provides forgiveness of sin is the same grace that sanctifies you. They are always together in Scripture. And so salvation by works would state this. It would say, to become a good tree, you must bear good fruit. That's legalism, and that's what we are against. But what the New Testament writers will talk always in this tone is, God has made you a good tree, therefore you will produce fruit, thus bearing witness of your conversion into a good tree. And with that mindset, you can go to people and say, if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. Because good trees don't live according to the flesh. So if you live in such a way to where sin is never dealt with, you make peace with it, you're comfortable with it, you justify it, this warning of eternal punishment is for you. So the warning is that those who live under the abiding power of sin, the threat of destruction and everlasting separation from God are to be held out to him. And for the believer, that warning will properly make its great effect on the believer, bring them to repentance. These are the dangers if we don't deal with sin. So how do we deal with it? How do we deal with this indwelling sin? What kind of stance do we take against it? Now this is the duty. In all of creation, there is this display of a clanging reality of what must happen to sin. And it must die. Everywhere you look, this is the picture. You start from the, the first time man sinned, Genesis 3. And the first thing God does is he cursed the world. As he said, everything's going to start dying. We're going to have the season fall. Leaves will die. Animals will die. It's what has to happen. And then God himself goes and takes an animal. And he kills an animal. So that they can have clothing. The sinners. And then you move into Genesis 5, and this, this reality becomes more alive. Because you read these genealogies, and you see these families, and initially you look at it and it can just seem kind of boring, but there's this common phrase at the end that is almost an emphasis that God wants us to get. It's, all right, the father, he lived for this long, and then he died. And then he lived for this long, and then he died. And this father lived for this long, and he died, and he died, and he died. And death becomes the theme. And then you go through the Old Testament, and what you see is you see more death. You see disease. You see murders. You see famines. We see God 
killing everyone in the flood. We see him destroying the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And over again, we see it in our life. We see tsunamis, we see earthquakes, we see disease, we see tragedy over and over again. Why? Because of sin. It's a parable. All these things are pictures of saying, this is what sin does. Because before sin, all you saw was peace, harmony, and life. After sin, you see death, pain, tragedy, disorder. And at the center of everything, you see the Son of God hanging on a cross, being slaughtered. That's the tone that the New Testament uses when it talks about dealing with sin. Romans 8, 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Colossians 3, 5, Therefore put to death your members which are on earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. But I discipline, pummel my body, and I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. John Owen, in his book, The Mortification of Sin, he'll say it this way. The mortification of indwelling sin remaining in the mortal bodies, that it may not have life and power to bring forth the works or deeds of the flesh, is the constant duty of believers. This is what we are to be about 24-7. The killing of sin that remains. The destroying of it. This is the tone, this is the mood, this is the intensity. Do you know what this means? It means that the Christian life cannot be a life of idleness. It cannot be about no effort or pursuit. That means we are actively involved in our pursuit of holiness all the time. And this also means that there's no inadvertent sins for believer. That's a sin in itself. For sin to just, for you to say, oh yeah, I just, it just came up on me. I wasn't ready for that. That's not the attitude or the position of a believer. The position should be that we are going to war against it. We are fighting it. We are preparing our hearts for it. And I'll confess that this has been so convicting for me. Absolutely. Because I can get... I can get my awareness of sin. It haunts me all the time. And I can say I hate it. 
But have I really taken the stance of saying, I am full force going out to destroy this? And I'm afraid it's been kind of the position of the church. We've called sin, we've made sin, to, and we've approached it so lackadaisical. You know, we're so nice about it. It's, yeah, you know, we, we all struggle with sin. You know, it's, it's hard. You know, try to do better next time. You know, but if you fail, you know, there's really no consequence. Guys, that's, that is not the language of the scriptures. And our brothers and sisters are dying daily because we haven't taken that stance. The vigor, power, and comfort of our spiritual life depends greatly on the mortification of the deeds of the flesh. Greatly. So how do we do it? Does this mean now that we are to, you know, grit our teeth and every bit of self-strength that we can muster up, we get out of this building and we go looking for that enemy. Like, where do we go? Is that how we do it? Or is it that we are to be clever, you know, kind of wise in our techniques? You know, try to create ways to kind of dodge him. No, any, any self-mortification of sin, they're all in vain. It's all folly. It will never work. And trust me, I know. It never kills it. It might put a lid on it, but guess what? He's still growing. The only way this can be done is by the Spirit. Only way. Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For by the Spirit you do it, you will live. This is one of the main reasons why God has given us the Spirit, is so that we may have a principle within whereby we can oppose sin and lust. Look at how Galatians says it. If I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of your flesh. Walk in the Spirit, and you won't. Why? For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. They are fighting against each other. So if you're walking in the Spirit, it is automatically fighting your enemy. They can't both be together. Either one is working or the other is working. John Owen says it this way too. He says, now this is the most unjust and unreasonable thing in the world when two combatants are engaged to bind one up and keep him from doing his utmost. Basically saying, how stupid would it be to take one of them and prevent them from doing their best thing that they can do and let the, and he says, and, and leave the other at liberty to wound him at his pleasure. And then secondarily, the foolish thing in the world is to bind him who fights for our eternal condition. And let, the, and let him alone who seeks and violently attempts our everlasting ruin. How dare we just go and bind up the spirit and say, I'm going to walk in the flesh for a little bit. And as we do that, all we're doing is binding up the spirit in our life. Not to be daily mortifying sin is to sin against the goodness, the kindness, the wisdom, and the grace 
and the love of God who has provided us with a principle of doing it. So what does it mean to walk in the Spirit would have to be one of our last questions. What does that mean? How does that look? It's, almost, it's kind of foreign to us. The idea of walking in the Spirit is this idea of moment by moment, decision by decision, you walk in the leading of the Spirit. It seems to always deal with the mind. It's allowing the Spirit's thoughts, its ways to flood our mind. Romans 8 will say it this way, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So the idea of walking in the Spirit is this idea of allowing the Spirit of God to fill our thoughts and those are the thoughts that we submit to. And as we do that, we are killing sin. Every second, every decision, every moment, every hour. And man, we could spend, and it would be a worthy conversation in home groups to talk about how we actively engage our minds in the thinking of the Spirit. I mean, those applications are so full I mean, I don't know how any Christian could think they would have any victory over sin if they don't spend any time in the Word of God. Because every second of the day, we are being preached to by sinful people. They are telling us what to think. And if we don't have something to combat it, if we don't have the spirits, His Word speaking truth in our, in our mind, we will not kill sin. I mean, meditating on the truth. That's why David said, I will hide your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. It's, it's focusing, it's, it's running through your blood. The word of God. Acting on convictions as the spirit convicts, we move into action. That's how we walk in the spirit. And so many, so many more are worthy of this conversation on how we participate in the thinking of the spirit of God. Christian, Christ died for you. He died for your sins. You have died in him. Your sin has been killed. Therefore, make it your duty to kill sin 24-7 by the means of the Spirit. Peter will say it this way, and this is where I'll close. In 1 Peter 1. As he says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. In verse 13. Gird up the loins of your mind. So prepare your mind. Get it ready for action. Be sober. Don't be drunk. Don't be messed up in your head. But be sober. Because what we're doing with is serious. What we're dealing with is serious. And he gives you two things to really, really look at. Two things to grab onto. And it's one is this. And rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the call is believer. 
Rest, put your hope fully in the things that are to come. This is one of the ways the Spirit motivates us as He shows us and He wants us to think upon the promises that are about to come to believers. That we are going to see Him. That we will have an inheritance. We get to be with Christ. He's coming for us. Sin will ultimately be removed out of this body. We will have a new body. These are the things that he says, set your hope fully on. And then number two, says at the end, verse 17, and if you call on the Father who is without partiality, judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear. These two things work side by side, hope and fear. And that almost seems paradoxical. How do you have both? I think this is the reality. It's not the fear that you come to God. It's not the fear that you should, you, you can't approach his throne with boldness. But rather he gives this reason. Knowing that you were not redeemed with the corruptible things like silver or gold from the aimless conduct received from tradition from your father, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. He says, conduct yourself in fear because the price that was paid for you was Jesus' life. This is to make you picture a father who has a daughter who he loves deeply. But someone, a captor, comes and takes that daughter and keeps her in captivity, and tells the father, if you want her back, it will cost you. But the cost, he didn't have, so he had to sell everything. Everything that was close to him, because he wanted his daughter back. And he goes and he knocks on the door of the captor with the ransom, and out comes the daughter, grabs the ransom, kisses her father, and goes back into the captor's to abode with her, them. That is what we should fear doing to the work of Jesus. To use the grace of God so that we can go and participate in sin is an evil that is above any other evil. And this breaks my heart because I've done it. I've done it. May we, may we, church, Walk in fear that we aren't like that daughter. To use the grace of God flippantly. And may that be ever with us as the Spirit talks us. And may we live in hope and promise and joy of what is to come. Because it is yours. It is yours. It's held for you. We must be about killing our sin or it will kill us. Let's go for it. Let's do it. Let's take on that duty. Let's pray. Lord, we are so sorry for our lackadaisical approach towards this. I'm so sorry. But renew in us a calling. Renew in us the, the passion for this. And may, not, may we not fall into the deceptions of 
trying to figure out how to do it ourselves. It fails over and over again, but rather continue to remind us to walk in the Spirit. Continue to remind us to take the path that you have paved for victory, which is your Spirit. Thank you for Him. Thank you for His work. And forgive us for how we've, we've just treated your grace as cheap. For that, Lord, we, we're sorrowful. We love you. And in your precious son's name we pray. Amen.